listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. Today, we have a really special guest joining us from Hawaii. He's been called the real estate mercenary. He is the VP of acquisitions with the Open Door Group. So anybody who's listened to Bigger Pockets over the last several years has definitely heard Brandon Turner go on and on about how awesome Ryan is. So Ryan Murdoch, welcome to the show. Hey, Sterling. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. So Ryan, let's just kick things off. Where did this whole real estate thing get started for you? Well, it depends on how far you want to dig back, but I was in electronics manufacturing for a better part of 10 years, uh, just kind of running around the world, working at different manufacturing facilities. And while that was a good run, I knew that it was something that I didn't want to retire doing. I was in my late 20s and just couldn't see myself doing that for another 30 or 40 years. So when I decided to move back, I was living in Asia at the time. When I decided to move back to the U.S., I was just looking for something new and, and seemed like real estate was a good idea. I had no clue about it. I just bought like you know real estate for dummies and property management for dummies and a, and a few other books and, and said, yeah, I can make a go with this. So I bought a duplex in Bangor, Maine and house hacked that. So I lived in one side, rented out the other, inherited some terrible tenants. So right out of the gate, I got experience with managing poor tenants. And I probably did a poor job as a manager trying to deal with them. But and not only were they bad tenants, but they were bad neighbors if you were housing. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah, it's even way worse. Yeah, a bad tenant in a remote location is one thing. A bad tenant on the other side of your kitchen wall is even worse. It was pretty stressful. But slowly grew that portfolio to, I think I've got 50 or so doors there now, which I had built out over, I don't know, six or eight years, maybe 10 years of doing it. At the same time, I got my real estate license and was was brokering deals for myself and others. And then I also started and, and operated a property management company around that same time, which I grew to about 200 doors that I was managing before I brought that company and went to work for a larger property management company, which then we were managing like 1500 doors. So in the early days when you were buying like your first duplex and then the subsequent 48, were you still working your day job or had you kind of already transitioned to real? And, and, the, and the reason I'm asking the question to lead into how were you funding these deals? How were they being financed? Yeah, I was working a W-2 job for the first few years of my real estate investing career, kind of in a similar line of work with production management and electronics manufacturing. I really, I hated it all, but I needed the W-2 income to start buying stuff. When I was able to finally make the leap away from a W-2 income, it was probably in terms of like bankability and getting loans and, and financing, it was way too early, but I just, I simply couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> just, just a, you know, consequences be damned. I'm going to burn that bridge. I'm going to leave my W-2 job and just make a go of it. And, and it did set me back in terms of being able to get bank loans and, and buy some of the properties that I wanted. So, But on the other side, it forced me to be more creative. I was able to seek out some, some owner financing deals. I was able to partner early on on one particular property. So yeah, it did set me back, but it was still worth it in terms of just not having to go in and punch a clock every day. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of trying to figure out when a good time to jump off that cliff, I think is a struggle for everybody. It's it's something that that's held me back for years. I feel like if I spent more time doing it instead of W2 work, that I could get a lot further. But I, I just the banks don't even sneeze at when they yeah. see my W2 income, they sure take whatever you want. So that right. That's yep. just something I guess everybody kind of has to overcome in their different ways. And I think it's different for everybody. I mean, it, it just depends on what you want to sacrifice. There are people that invest in real estate that have a W-2 job that they that they thoroughly enjoy. So maybe those people will stick around longer or, or, or forever and just, just invest on the side. I happen to just absolutely 
loathe my W-2 job. So I wanted to get out of there sooner rather than later and, and was willing to take, you know, some more of the consequences on the other side of doing that. And it was, it was still worth it. So tell me more about the property management company. Why did you start the property management company? What did you think of it? Is, I'm interested to find out more about the property management side, because when I first started investing in real estate, I said, I'm going to go start a property management company. Yeah. And a couple of years later, I go, I'm outsourcing everything. I don't ever want to manage another. Yeah, I was say, from somebody who's been there and done that, don't do it. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do it. My mindset at the time was I had a handful of, of rentals. So I don't know, six or eight doors. And I decided at that time, if, if I had to have the systems, like I was self-managing those. So if I had to have the systems in place to deal with maintenance emergencies or tenant relations or whatever it was, like as a landlord, you have to have that system in place. Even if you only have one unit, you've got to have some mechanism in place that there's, you know, the, the toilet explodes in the middle of the night, the tenant needs to be able to call you or call somebody and you've got to be able to effectively deal with it. And I figured, well, if I'm essentially married to my six or eight units, I might as well be married to a lot more of them because I can certainly use the income because I quit my job. So like that was a way to, to, to further my income. And it, it seemed to fit well with kind of what I had already built out for, for my own small portfolio. And with that said, I had I really had no idea what I was doing. It was it was really trial by fire. And I think I had like my six or eight units and I was managing a handful of like maybe three or four units for other people. And then out of the blue, one day I got a call from an investor who had a hundred, just over a hundred units in my area and was had pretty much burned through all the other property managers in the yeah. area. Some fault of the other property managers, a lot of fault of this investor, which I came to work with this guy for, for many years. He was he was a very tough, tough guy to work with. But he had a hundred plus units that he was looking for management for, which worked out that I was able to take those on. So I went from say 10 units under management to a hundred, hundred and ten overnight which really had me scrambling in terms of like trying to dial in my systems or build out systems that I didn't have. It was just me as a one-man band trying to do all this stuff. So I was doing all the leasing, I was doing all the bookkeeping, I was doing all the showings, taking all the maintenance calls, doing act- some of the actual maintenance. But it was, it was a great shot in the arm. I mean, the income was good. If you averaged it out, as an hourly wage, I was probably making about 50 cents an hour because it was taking up a ton of <laughs> right. my time. But you want to talk about it, you know, an opportunity to, to get my property management company to a, to a spot where it was like fairly legit, like property management company for, for that area and just build my experience, really fast track my experience. It was a great opportunity. I was able to just kind of push me to that level. Yeah, no, sometimes people are always so paranoid about getting the perfect deal, especially early on. But I always encourage people that like kind of hit me up after they listen to the show and they want advice on getting started. I was like, it really doesn't matter. That first little deal really doesn't matter. Like if you lose a couple grand, it's not the end of the world. What's going to be so much more important is the experience you gain from it. I have properties that I would never buy today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, me too. But I'm so glad I bought them because I learned a ton from them. I got a lot of credibility from the number of doors I had. I mean, I learned what mistakes not to make. So sometimes those those sour pills can be very beneficial for your long-term growth. Yeah, absolutely. And as I mean, that duplex that I mentioned that I that I bought as my first one, I think I owned that for almost 10 years until I actually started turning an actual profit, which was like just a couple of years ago. So I ran that thing in the red for the better part of a decade. It wasn't a huge loss, but it, you know, I, I, like you said, I, I would not have purchased that again. And I've got, you know, uh, no shortage of examples like that. But what I found in addition to just the experience that I've gained from those properties, those mistakes on a smaller scale have certainly prevented me from making similar mistakes on a much larger scale. So if I bought a duplex and I'm losing a hundred bucks a month, 
okay, lesson learned, and I can absorb that hundred bucks a month. But if I make that same mistake on a million or a $10 million property that's bleeding, you know, a hundred grand a month, I can't absorb that. Sure. So those smaller mistakes have, have definitely helped me avoid much larger ones down the road. Yeah, absolutely. So where did you go from there? So you've, you've got your, you know, your 50 local properties, your booming property management business in, in Maine. What's next in the, in the story? Yeah, I ran the property management business for about five years. And again, it was still pretty much just all me. So dealing with tenants, dealing with owners, dealing with all the day-to-day stuff, the showing, the leasing, the, the bookkeeping, all that. Just got to the point where for me, it was unsustainable. I had done it for five years and there was really no escape from that. Like there were really no days off. I had my phone glued to my head all the time. Looking back, I probably should have hired help earlier, but I don't know. I had a problem doing that. Something I still struggle with today is just, just sure. delegation of, of, of duties. I think a lot of people kind of have that same hesitation to do it. And the other part of it was I didn't feel like I could justify paying. Like I didn't think I could afford to mm-hmm. hire help. And, and looking back, I, I would have been way further ahead if I just bit the bullet financially, hired some people, and it would have allowed me to grow further. But what I ended up doing is, is taking my book of business and I went to work for a larger property management company in the area that were happy to have me. They were looking for some help and I showed up with, with a sizable book of business. So I, I pretty much arrived self-funded. So they paid me a salary, but I brought all the business with me to, to really sure. support that. And I was thrilled to do that because they were bigger, more established, and they had all of the things that I was missing. So they had full-time maintenance staff. They had full-time administrative help. Like I could take a weekend off and the world didn't burn to the ground because there sure. were people that could take over. So, so I, I worked for them, with them for about another four or five years and got to the point where I was able to build up my own uh, rental portfolio so that I could leave that company, leave that job and just self-manage my own rental portfolio. And I was doing some real estate brokerage at the time and I was doing some consulting. So I had sufficient income and continued to grow that until I could hire that same management company to manage then my 50 units. So then I was completely, (laughs) completely hands off. So I was just doing my brokerage and my consulting and then got the call from Brandon, Brandon Turner, that he needed some help out here in Maui, just getting settled in, in the new house that he had bought. How did you meet Brandon? I was on the Bigger Pockets podcast, I don't know, uh, a few years back. And it wasn't because I knew Brandon. I just applied to, to be on the show because I love Bigger Pockets and, and really had gotten a ton of value out of the podcast and the forums. And it really just like listening to the podcast and being on the forums really catapulted my motivation and my success as a, as a real estate investor. So I was just super jazzed up with, with, with everything on bigger pockets, applied to be on the podcast, did that show. And then it was what, a few, six or 12 months later, Brandon was promoting that he was looking for a mobile home park. So he had 1031 money that he needed to, to use and was looking for a mobile home park. And I happened to find one that, that matched his criteria. It was in my local area, just outside of Bangor, Maine sent the deal to him and he liked it, came out, we did some due diligence and closed on the park. And, and part of that deal was that he didn't want to be the boots on the ground. I mean, this is in Maine. He didn't sure. want to go there. He didn't want to deal with it, but I, I was there. I was, I was capable. I knew the market. And so that was kind of my role in that deal in exchange for some equity was, uh, you know, I found the deal and I was the boots on the ground guy and we built a relationship that way. Awesome. And I've heard that story several times because like you, I was raised on bigger pockets and I, I wouldn't have any of my portfolio or any of this without, without everything I've learned from, from this show. So can you tell us, break that deal down for us, that, that mobile home park that you found in Maine, kind of give us the numbers on it? Yeah, sure. Brandon was looking for a, a 50 lot mobile home park and he wanted public water, public sewer, which is, this park had, it matched, it was exactly 50 lots, uh, had public water, public sewer. Um, 
I don't have the information right in front of me, but I think at the, at the time we, we, we bought it, we paid just over a million bucks for it. We put 20% down and the rest was seller carry, which is great. So no bank involved, no appraisal, none of that kind of stuff. So if you, you know, anytime I can get seller financing, that's certainly, yeah. certainly attractive. And there was quite a bit of value add to be done there. So I, I think when we took it over, there were 36 occupied lots. And out of those 36, a lot of them were not paying or had, had other issues. So we went in and had to, like is so typical with any rental property, you evict all the bad apples. How many of the actual mobile homes did the park own? A majority of them. I forget the exact number, but I want to say probably 20-ish out of the 36 that were there were park owned. So part of the transition, we bought this in, in January of 2018. So we're about two and a half years into it now. So in the two and a half years, I think we immediately had, there were 10 or 12 homes that were there, but vacant and in pretty rough shape. And I remember Brandon and I, uh, as part of our due diligence, it was in December. I think it was in December. It just got awful cold. And we're walking through this like collection of unheated, blown out, burned out mobile homes, trying to rate them <laughs> in order of like how how terrible they were. And that's a three. Like, yeah, really. It was like a one to 10. Like that's how we were so cold and just they were like so overwhelmed. We're like, okay, the details go out the window. It's just a one to 10 rating scale. And this is what they get. So we use that same rating scale. It's funny. I still have the, I think the, the picture I took of the notepad that we just wrote it down on. And that's how we renovate them. So we, we went through and the, the easiest ones to get to market and get rent ready. We tackled those ones first and then just went down the list. And by the time we got to the bottom of the list, there were a couple, I think that we even decided to scrap, like they weren't even, they weren't even worth renovating, but we got them all, all fixed up. There were, I think eight or 10 vacant lots, maybe 12 vacant lots to which just, I think three months ago, we finally filled all the vacant lots. So we renovated all the, the homes that needed it. We demoed the ones that were no good. And then we filled the vacant lots by buying used homes, bringing them in getting them fixed up and then selling them off. And then as far as the occupied park-owned homes, the goal was, and, and still is for all the parks we buy today, to get all the homes transitioned to tenant-owned homes. And there's, there's mm-hmm. a few different ways to do that. But what we chose in this particular park is we didn't, want to, we didn't want to force anybody out. We didn't want to displace anybody. So we allowed the renters to just stay and continue renting until such time that they moved out or were evicted or, or whatever until that, till that unit was vacant. And then at that time, we, we, we've opted to fix the unit up and then sell it off. So we won't take in any new renters. We'll, we'll let the existing renters stay and ride out their time. But as soon as anything comes vacant, we're not re-renting it. We're, we're just selling it. Are you selling it off of the park or are you selling it to somebody who moves in? And are you selling it cash or are you seller financing it? We prefer cash sales. Uh, it's quickest and easiest. That's not always the case. So we, we do have some sort of lease to own type contracts that, that we have some seller financing type stuff to the tenants. So either way, but cash is certainly preferred. Got it. So this was your, your first kind of tiptoe into mobile homes, right? First tiptoe into, into ownership. I had managed parks for many years uh, as part of the management company. So I spent many, many hours down on the dirty, disgusting trenches of, of mobile home park management. So the day-to-day operations for me were very familiar, but this was really the first time that I had really had any interest, which is like, I look back, I'm like, why didn't I catch onto this sooner? But the first time that I had interest in actually actually owning them was this project with Brandon. So, you know, if, if you look at what we've done there over the past two and a half years, and this is a very small part, but it's a great example of the amount of expenses we were able to trim and then the amount of income we were able to generate just through infilling either vacant homes or, or vacant lots, you know, has, has probably increased that, that park's value from the million or so bucks that we bought it for. And I think 
you know, if you were to look at the NOI today, it'd probably value out around 1.8, 1.9 million. Um, right. Whether or not we could actually sell it for that, I don't know. But you know, I, I think we could stick a for sale sign in the yard today and, and sell it for a million and a half, maybe 1.6. So that's a pretty good percentage of value add in, in a relatively sure. short period of time. In two years, yeah. Yeah. So after you guys kind of successfully got that one off and running, is, is that kind of when you started Open Door Capital and just kind of started raising tons of money to buy tons of parks? Or, or what is the kind of natural evolution there? From yeah, it was about a year after we bought that park that I had actually, like I, like I mentioned, I came out here just to, to visit with Brandon in Maui and pretty much never left. I decided yeah. I really liked it here. <laughs> uh, went back to Maine just long enough to like sell all my stuff, list the house for sale, grab the wife and dogs, and we jumped on a one-way flight back to Maui to set up here. And obviously we were doing well with the small mobile home park that we had. Brandon had some some pretty big intentions of scaling that up. And that's what we did. So he formed Open Door Capital. Originally it was just, just him and I working through this. And that was what, a year, maybe 15 months ago that we really started getting serious about it. And in that time, we now have a team of the six or eight of us full-time that are working exclusively on, on Open Door Capital stuff. We've closed on we're at just under 600 lots right now that we awesome. own. And I think we've got another 800 or 900 under contract right now. So we've, we've been scaling up at a pretty good clip. We're targeting 50 million in acquisitions by the end of this year, which is super aggressive, but we're, uh, I'm still confident we're going to hit it. If we don't hit it, we're going to be, we're going to be darn close. And I feel like we're, we're just getting started. We get, we've got an incredible team some incredible talent and I think we're just scratching the surface of what we're going to be able to accomplish. Awesome. So where are you looking and what is your criteria in those areas? Our criteria really, I mean, it's the same as what a lot of other people are looking for. We want a hundred lots or larger, much larger is, is certainly better. We're looking for public utilities. So we want public water, public sewer, not to say that you can't find good deals and operate parks with private utilities. We have just chosen that we want the ease of maintenance with public water and sewer. And so far, we've been able to buy plenty of parks with that. We started out like originally focused in certain geographic ranges. Like we didn't want anything above kind of the, the snow line where it gets cold and snowy and we have to deal with frozen pipes and, and snow removal, but we've ended up buying quite a few properties there. So we'll pretty much look anywhere in the U.S. as long as there's a, a, a reasonably decent population. We're looking for 100,000 people within a 10 mile radius. And we like to see a, a stable or better yet increasing population as opposed to a, a sharply decreasing one. But that, that's really, that's the, that's the main criteria. And then we get into the weeds a little bit where obviously we prefer all tenant owned homes. That's rarely how you find a park is usually some element of park owned homes. Sometimes there's a lot of them, uh, which can be a challenge. But if we buy a park with park owned homes, there's usually a plan in place to, to convert those either, you know, it, quickly or, or over, you know, a four to five year period, depending on, depending on the situation, how many, how many homes there are. Awesome. What is it that you like about mobile home parks over other more traditional multifamily type properties? Uh, there's a couple of key factors there that I like the sort of recession resistance that, that mobile home parks tend to have like this COVID fiasco over the past <laughs> few months has been, has been a, a great sign of that. I think, over the past three months, our rent collections are at like 98, 99%, which I'll take that. I mean, you're not going to get much better than that on sure. any circumstances, any economic climate, but we've done even better than I thought on rent collections. So really no impact there at all. I mean, that it's workforce housing. It's, it's lower income housing. And whether you're in mobile home parks or, or apartments in a recession, you know, that stuff tends to hold up a lot better. It's generally the, the higher end units that get hit the hardest 
or, you know, people just tend to move down a notch on, on, on where they're living. And I remember during the crash of like 2008, 2009, I was managing some of my own and other, you know, C-class, lower income type rentals. And the rent prices for those actually went up. We were able to increase rents like 25 or 50 bucks a month because the demand went up. You know, again, the, the higher end stuff was getting killed and everybody was just kind of getting compacted down to the, to the lower end stuff. So demand went up. So mobile home parks tend to be very recession resistant in that regard. And the other thing that I like about them is just the way that we're able to add value to the park. So when we buy a park, typically we love to buy something that's say 60 to 70% occupied so that there's 20 or 30, 40% vacancy. And the way that we can, we can fill those vacancies is just by bringing in homes. So we can go in and, and add tremendous value to a park, not by raising lot rents and, and displacing the existing residents, but by bringing in homes, filling the otherwise out-of-service lots. We bring in the home, set it up, renovate it, and sell it off to, to a tenant buyer. And even if we sell that home at a break-even price or even a little bit of a loss, what we're doing is, is activating that lot rent. So now mm. you had a lot that was generating no income. Now it's generating whatever, 300, 350 bucks a month. So and, and that goes straight to your bottom line. So you're actively going out and buying used mobile homes, towing them in, fixing them up, and then selling yes. them to the potential tenants. Yeah, yes. Ideally, we'd love to just run an ad. And we and sometimes we do this. We run move-in specials or, you know, we'd love to have a tenant just bring their own home in because for us, that's, that's easier and, and a lot. Does cheaper, that happen a lot? Because no, I've heard it's kind of expensive. No, no, no. We won't live long enough to see a tenant fill a mobile home park with, with their own homes. It just doesn't happen quick enough. So that's why we, we're proactive and we go out. And, and depending on the park, depending on the on the market, We'll fill either with brand new homes or more likely we'll find good used homes, bring them in and, and renovate them. And, and when we do that, the goal is to offer good quality housing. New homes, that, that's pretty easy. It's turnkey. It's brand new. But even an older home, we stray away. There's a lot of people that just kind of do the handyman special where they're just hauling a junker that needs all kinds of work and just sell it cheap or give it away to a tenant. And we found that like the success rate for that is, is, is not real high. You know, either they don't fix it up and it just looks like crap or the tenant gets in over their head and it's, it's more than what they thought. So it just, it doesn't end well. So we make a point to renovate everything and make it nice. We want to move in ready when the, when the tenant takes it over and we want them to succeed. So we want them to do well with it. So we want them to get off to a good start. And again, even if it's an older home, we want everything in good condition, everything checked out, you know, plumbing, electric, heating system. We want everything to, to work, you know, nice, paint flooring and really get them off to a good start. And we found that even though that costs us a little more upfront, we're just building a better community and we're attracting better, better quality tenants. So how long do mobile home parks last? And I'm asking this because if, if you bring them in and you sell them to the tenants and from what I've heard, and I don't know much about mobile homes, but I have heard they, they don't last as long as, as traditional structures. So at what point are you going to be in a spot where all of your mobile homes are at end of life and, oh no, now I've got to go replace 400 mobile homes. The people who live here can't afford to go buy a new one. What's your plan for that? It really depends on the market. It depends on the park. You could prop up an old mobile home indefinitely if, if you really want okay. to. I mean, we, we have parks where, and I've certainly seen parks where there, there's homes that are 40 and 50 years old. But what happens is it gets to the point where it just doesn't make financial sense to keep renovating them. Like, you know, it's going to cost you 10 or 15 or 18,000 to renovate this wreck of an ancient mobile home. That doesn't make sense. Just pull it out of there. And for 15 grand, we can get one that's, you know, mid nineties model and, and, and looks a lot nicer and is a lot bigger and, and just has, has nicer amenities. So the spot where we, where we tend to get stuck is if we have 
lots in a park that are very small. The older mobile home parks tend to have very short lots because that's all that was needed back in, say, the, the 50s or 60s. A lot of times when these older parks were built is they were built to accommodate eight foot wide homes and, and maybe 50 foot in length. Well, in 2020, the homes are generally bigger. They're, they're 16 sure. by 60 or 70 or 80. So the lots uh, now are larger. So you see in, in some of the old parks, it makes more sense to try to preserve an older home because you ha- you're going to have a hard time finding something to replace it with that's in any better yeah. shape or, or whatever. So sometimes we're stuck in, in trying to, to extend the life of a home beyond where we normally would just because of, of the size constraint. But that's, that's a, you know, it's kind of a minor issue in the grand scheme of things. Most of the lots we have will, will accommodate bigger homes. So it's always a judgment call. And when you look at a home, is it, you know, you just weigh the cost and what the final product is going to be if you renovate it versus just getting it out of there, scrapping it and, and bringing in something new. Gotcha. What advice do you have for any of our listeners that are looking to get started? And that you, you can look at that question two ways. One, if, if we have any, any, kind of quasi-experienced real estate investors looking to break into the mobile home park space? Or if somebody, you know, it sounds like you've been through a gambit of different real estate endeavors, maybe somebody who's stuck in that job that they hate yeah. and they're looking for a way out. Yeah, I, I think the, the best way to get started in anything really is, it's, it, I mean, it can, be, it can be dangerous to just jump in with both feet by yourself in something that you have no experience with. So if you're able to in any way, shape or form, partner or align yourself with somebody that's doing what you want to do. So for example, you know, go to a real estate meetup and, and find an, an investor that's maybe kind of working on the asset class or doing what you want to do and, and see how you can add value to them and help them out just to really try to learn their their process. Certainly me going and, and doing property management for years was a great way to figure out how to manage property. And I made plenty of mistakes along the way, but I, but I learned a ton, especially with mobile home parks. That's, you know, that's, typically a pretty big investment for like the first timer there there's some small parks out there but like generally it's a it's a pretty sizable investment and there's a lot of variables so for somebody that has zero experience i wouldn't really recommend just go out hey just buy a park and figure (laughs) it out you know unless you're very well funded and you can absorb all the mistakes that you're going to make i wouldn't just dive right into it i would i would try to align yourself and help out in some way with with either management of a park or maybe you know just volunteer a weekend uh, you know help your buddy out who already has a park and just do some renovations and try to get some hands-on experience through somebody else before you do your own thing i mean you wouldn't go out and open a restaurant without having ever worked in a restaurant right i mean just your your chances for success are slim but if you spent six or 12 months working in a restaurant you get a pretty good handle and you learn a ton sure. about running a restaurant if that's that's what you wanted to do. So I think the same thing applies with real estate is is somehow partner, whether it's financially or just on a volunteer basis or just, just get involved with somebody that's doing it so you can learn from them without having to hit your own pocketbook. Absolutely. So real quick, our radio round, just to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First question is, what is your favorite book? My Favorite book, probably still, and I say this on every show, people are getting sick of this, but 4-Hour Workweek just really helped me change my mindset in terms of I don't need to be focused, like hands-on, physically at my business at all times. If I can set up systems and have people in place so that things still run smoothly, so that even if I'm still accessible, even though it's through phone or email or, or Zoom or whatever, I don't need to be physically there in one place for my business to be successful. And as soon as that light kind of clicked and I, and I started building out systems to, to deal with that, I was able to really back away from the hands-on day-to-day stuff and travel a lot, which is what I really wanted to do. For people who don't care about traveling, they love working hands-on, then, then you know, that doesn't apply to you. But for me, it was, it was a, just a huge eye-opener 
that, uh, hey, I can still work and I can still run a successful business, but I don't have to physically be there in that location to do it. And, and something that I learned is even if you don't mind working now, set the system up because you, you might not feel like doing it you know, later yeah. down the road. When yeah. I first started managing properties, like, oh, I got this, I got this. I yeah. don't mind doing it. A couple yeah. of years ago, I'm like, I'm so sick of this. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So, yeah, a lot of times once you get to that point, it's, you know, once you get burned out, <laughs> it's too late. Like you can't recover from that all right. the time. So yeah, always be looking for a way to, to back yourself out of your business so that when the time comes to do it, you're, you're not starting from scratch and trying to figure out how. Definitely. What is your favorite thing to do outside of work? And you better say snorkeling. Uh, no, I'm not gonna say scuba diving. Yeah, I'm, a, scuba I'm an absolute diving. scuba junkie, and if I could make a great living doing that, I would probably. Actually, no, I wouldn't do that because anytime I've turned a, a hobby into a job, it's ruined it. So no, <laughs> I, I guess I, I better keep it the real estate to, to make money to pay for my scuba addiction because I am yeah. I am in the water here every chance I possibly get. Man, anybody who's not following Ryan on Facebook, they should go out and follow him right now just for the awesome pictures he's posting every day. Probably once or twice a week, I'll show some of the pictures that I see him post on Facebook to my wife. When he reached out to me about this interview, I said, oh man, I know exactly who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people started following me on Instagram because of my real estate stuff and I pretty much just abandoned all that and it's, it's ridiculous like scuba and beach pictures. So probably obnoxious to some, but I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you enjoy them at least and, yeah. and, and get some value out of them. So, uh, I, I sure have fun taking them. So if I'm wrong, please correct me. But I want to say I, I also saw on Facebook that Open Door Capital is doing some type of incentive for people out there to bring y'all deals. Yeah, absolutely. So we are offering a $50,000 finders fee to anybody that brings us an off-market mobile home park that we close on. So that means like, I mean, we're, and we're happy to write that check. So we don't need you to get it under contract. We don't need people to broker the deal. All we need is the name of the park, a little bit of information. So if you go to, it's bringbrandonadeal.com. If you go to bringbrandonadeal.com, there's three or four questions there that we want and maybe a warm introduction to the seller. So maybe an email or, you know, it's somebody that, you know, either, have a great relationship with, or maybe, you know, you overheard your brother-in-law's buddy's got a park that's for sale uh, or that he wants to sell, like put us in touch with that person and we'll, we'll take it from there. And if we, if we close on that park, we will write you a check for 50 grand. So that's, that's brought us a ton of leads. We have at least one park, I think maybe two under contract right now that came in that way. So we've got, we've got a couple investors that are, that are lined up for a $50,000 check, which we will be absolutely thrilled to, to write. But it's got to be it's got to be an off market deal, and it's got to be one that we that we don't have our hands on already. So uh, bring Brandon awesome. the deal, check it out. If you, if you find a park, let us know. Awesome. So where can our listeners find out more about you or get in touch with you? Check out our website. It's odcfund.com, and you can email me Ryan R Y A N at odcfund.com, or you can check me out on Instagram. I'm at ryan.murdoch21. And uh, I'm on Facebook as well if you want to see some goofy scuba pictures and stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. We uh, definitely look forward to staying in touch and, and keeping up with your scuba diving as well as your uh, real estate investing. So thanks yeah, for man, joining appreciate us today. It. Right. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us 
at crestworthcapital.com or rentrollradio.com or follow us on Facebook at rentrollradio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestworthcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.